Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young. People love to try to figure out what Apple is up to and, and guess their strategy. And that's true for its education strategy, as well as, as all of its consumer devices. But often, for the secretive company, there's not much to go on beyond press releases and, and speculation. So when Apple's longtime vice president of education, John Couch, put out a book this year with his vision and, and accounts of his work at Apple, it opened a rare window into how the company views education. The book is called Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. And it does offer some anecdotes about how the late Steve Jobs thought about computers in education, including there's one anecdote about how he called computers an amplifier for intellect the same way a bicycle amplifies the physical push of the rider. And in the book, Couch writes that Jobs predicted this mental bicycle would allow us to go beyond and discover, create, and innovate like never before. But the book is also full of frustration at what Couch sees as the slow pace of change in schools and colleges. He's essentially arguing that the machines Apple's built are still not being used right when it comes to education. For this week's podcast, I connected with Couch to talk about those frustrations and about his time at Apple and where he sees the company going next. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Fusion Conference. Join education and nonprofit leaders from around the country this October to discuss how learning sciences, social emotional learning, and technology can advance personalized learning for the whole learner. Visit fusion.edsurge.com to register. All right, we're talking today with John Couch, uh, who for the last 16 years was vice president for education at Apple, but actually served for Apple for a large part of his career and was one of the earliest Apple employees, as we can get into in, the, in this discussion. But um, more recently, he's the author of the new book, Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. Thanks so much for talking with us. It's my pleasure. One of the things that I'm really curious about is, since you have served those different roles at Apple and were there since the beginning, really, very near, um, how, how would you say... How much was education really a a topic and a concern in the earliest days? Um, uh, huge, huge, right from the beginning. Steve would say education's in our DNA, all right? Um, the first project, I think, which really got Apple started in education was the adoption by the Minnesota Education Consortium to go with Apple IIs. So we probably had more education software in the early, early days of the PC than anyone else. But Steve had a special place in his heart, particularly for elementary schools. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the book, there's a quote that said, where Steve is quoted as saying, if I could put one computer in a school and one person would find that computer, it would change their life. And that's what led, that's what led for the, uh, the marketing. First big marketing program was, uh, was it teachers can't wait, uh, students can't wait, kids can't wait. The Kids Can't Wait, where he went to Congress and he walked the halls in Congress talking to the House of Representatives to Congress to get a bill passed for a tax advantage if, if a computer was donated to an elementary school, like what existed at the university level. It did not pass out of the committee, but California heard about it and they adopted the law and Apple was able to give every school in California an Apple II. 
And so that, again, innovation, you know, from a marketing perspective, Steve's passion for education is really what I think got Apple started. Hmm. And then when you came back, when, which was soon a few years after Steve Jobs himself famously came back to Apple, um, and so there was a kind of, uh, it was a different time, but, an, it, you know, and there was a time where I remember, you know, it, it looked like Apple was kind of fading and then it, Steve Jobs came back and brought it back. And then, and so there's been these, these ebbs and flows through Apple and in Apple in education. But when you first took on your role in edu- as the, the vice president of education, what was your, what was your vision when you came in and, and how did you see education then? Yeah, and that was the first question I asked. And, you know, Simon Sinek, I think, says it's best. Start with why. You know, mm-hmm. why are we in education? What's our vision? And to me, it was very clear. It was about the student. It wasn't about, you know, uh, the institution itself. And that, and, you know, we, we, we were following Steve's vision in terms of the genius marketing program. And so my vision was that every student is a unique genius. And it, it's really up to us in education to help them find that gift. And so that was the original vision. And the second part of it was that we knew that, um, that technology was continuing to grow and that we would be able to build um, a learning environment based on technology that would eventually be all digital, that would, be, that would meet the needs of all students. Mm-hmm. Um, that content would become free, right? And it would be available on, on the internet. And that assessment should not be something where you take the kids out of a learning environment, throw them into a lab and test them separately. But assessment should be part of the, of the learning environment, of the ecosystem, so that it's real time, so that the teacher knows immediately after the Northwest Educational Assessment Test, that Johnny and Susie don't understand quadratic equations. And the system will dynamically send to those students, maybe it's an app on the quadratic equations, where the kids may work one hour a week, I'm describing eSparks solution, one hour a week on the app, at the end of the week, they produce something that shows their mastery of quadratic equations. And we've seen test scores go from 20 nine percent to 68 percent in one semester when you can deliver the student the exact learning environment that they need to overcome whatever gap that is in their is in their knowledge base and vice versa the the bright students you deliver them a challenge you challenge them with challenge-based learning type pedagogy going back a few years I, i i'll have to tell you this story because i think it's i think it's still almost true today I donated the first Apple IIs to a Catholic school in Los Gatos, California. Two Apple IIs. They had no idea what to do with them. No idea. There wasn't a, this was 1978. So they cleaned out the janitorial closet. They put the two Apple IIs in there, and they told the kids, this is available to you during free time, before school, recess, lunch, after school. I watched kids learn to read in that lab, in that little tube you know, two computer janitorial closet. At the end of the year, when they surveyed the students as their favorite class, they voted the janitorial closet. The eighth grade decided that their gift to the school would be maybe, I forgot how many, another four or six Apple IIs. Now the school had a dilemma. They've got eight Apple IIs. They don't fit in a janitorial closet. What are you going to do? 
I'll tell you what they did. They hired somebody's mom who used to work at IBM, and they taught a class the next year called Computers. And I saw the first exam, and it was the front page of the manual with certain words left blank that the kids had to fill in. Nothing about creativity, nothing about exploration. Um, and so I wrote a paper. It was called How the Apple Was Lost on the Way to School. And I said, if we're not careful, our institutions will take Steve's vision of a metal bicycle, something that doesn't, it doesn't go where we've already been. It allows us to create, to innovate, uh, to explore, and turn it into an exercise cycle, something that's boring and doesn't go anywhere. And I think there's still some truth today. We put computers in schools, and we, we basically substitute. We say, well, we're going to do the same thing we've always did before, but this time we're going to do it digitally. Right? Rather than looking up the information in a book, we're going to look up the information on the Internet. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit better because it's real time. But we haven't fundamentally changed the way the classroom works, the way we learn, and the way we teach. And that's what technology can do. Technology can reach each individual. In, in the book, we use an example of, of a fifth-grade class in Chicago, one student reading at the eighth-grade level, one student reading at the first-grade level, six different reading levels in the class. Now, what the teacher should do is create six different learning assignments for each of those levels. There's not enough time in a week. We're asking our teachers to perform a miracle. can't be done. So what do we do? We teach to the middle. And Todd Rose's book, End of Average, I think is a great book. Uh, we're, we're close friends. He's got a new book coming out called um, uh, Dark, Dark Horses that I've been interviewed for. And oh, a whole good. Yeah. He's, he's been on our podcast as well, Todd yeah. Rose. So yeah. Are, are yeah. And it's a whole new campaign coming on individuality. And that's all I'm saying is each student is an individual. All four of my kids were different. All 16 grandkids were different. Every class I've ever taught, whether it was at Berkeley or at San Jose State or at Santa Fe Christian, the kids are all unique. And how do we, and that's where I think technology can come in, and instead of being a, uh, a speed bump, be an amplifier for the teacher. And so, it's about yeah, time. It, it's interesting. I noticed in the book, though, that you – um, you, you stop short. In fact, you sort of criticize people who say we should just throw out our education system and replace it with some gadget or, or some new, totally new way. Um, and, and what, so what's, what is the point you're trying to make, um, there with, 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 it seems like yeah. you chose the word rewiring education intentionally for your book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at the two spectrums, one is throw the whole education system out and start from scratch. The other one is patch it. You know, think of, a, think of writing a we, – we equated it to writing a software program, right? Hmm. You write the first draft of the program, and it's, not, it's got errors. So you patch it, patch it, patch it, patch it. And you patch it – you know, we're going to patch it by having only 20 kids in the class. We're going to patch it by this. We're going to patch it by that, okay? That hasn't worked. Throwing the whole thing out is not the solution either way. What we're talking about is we need, we need to rewire it and – we need to rewire it in such a way that it's scalable and then it's, that it's editable and then it's adjustable. Uh, and, and I, the way I, I really feel that the pedagogy, and I think we proved this around the world, that the pedagogy of challenge-based learning where the student picks the challenge, uh, you know, they always pick something harder than the teacher would pick. And they always pick something relevant to them and their community is, is a, I think it's a pedagogy that 
that has worked very, very, very well. And when you think about it, the pedagogy of a challenge-based learning is the same for coding as it is to starting a company. So the process is what's important. Hmm. And it's the same process. Same process to, to, to be a coder, same process to, to take on a challenge in challenge-based learning, and the same process to starting a company to take on a challenge to solve a problem. They're all about problem solving. And our books are, our books are not about problem solving. Our books are saying, here's the answer. Here's the formula for, you know, the quadratic equation. Apply it. Mm -hmm. I want to talk specifically because a lot of our, our, our readers are in schools um, and, and colleges as well. But in, in schools specifically, you know, it seems like a few years ago, especially around like 2010, 2011, um, there were a lot of iPads being sold to schools. And, and it's just huge, huge numbers. Obviously, you still see that some today, but it feels like it feels like there was kind of this big push, and then it feels like it's faded out a little bit. What What do you think? Was there some was something about what you're just saying now the problem or or challenge for some of those schools that have that have either backed away from huge district wide implementations of iPads or or for whatever reasons not seen well, that expansion? Well, here here's the thing, um, and this gets down to. Um, Ruben Putendera's research work at the Main Learning Initiative, where he says technology can be used as a substitution. It can be used or it can be used to redefine the classroom. The majority of schools, I would say 80 to 90% of the schools have bought technology for the sake of buying technology. Almost like a lockout spec, right? Well, we've got technology. Um, but they've never employed that technology um, you know, there's another model uh, called the uh, uh, TPAC model that says there's a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship between the technology, the content, and the pedagogy, and you need to change all three. Most schools have not changed all three. And so what – and I told Steve this. I said, you know, Steve, if, if all the schools do is buy the iPad because it's cheaper, because they think they can replace the cost of the textbooks – but they don't change the fundamental way they teach, we will have failed. And I think there's, there's, there's a lot of iPads out there that are simply being used in a substantive manner. Uh, it's kind of like the whiteboard. Did the whiteboard really change education? No. And a lot of schools bought whiteboards and they said, you know, look at, look at our technology. You know, we're, we're ahead of the game. No, you've, you've, you're just using technology as a substitution. And so that's, and because of that, technology's got a bad name. Right? I mean, there's a lot of people out there that says, you know, but that's because it's not being used correctly. Now, it gets back to being training the teachers, right? We need to be able to, to see. I think the teachers, teachers, we need to elevate the level of a teacher to a professional, not a union worker. We need to pay them, and they need to have ongoing professional development like an accountant. Hmm. Because, you know, here comes artificial, here comes AR, right? Here comes Internet 2.0. Here comes, uh, you know, transactions, uh, blockchain. Here comes all this new technology. Teachers haven't got a clue because we're not, we're not training them and saying, look, here's how this technology can be used to change the way things you're doing in the classroom. So what do we do? You know, we tell the kids, you know, 
uh, turn your iPads off because we're going to, we're going to do a test today or, you know, um, it, it's kind of ironic because I was asked to be on the, the committee that wrote Obama's original technology plan. And there's about 16 of us in the room. And the first thing they said was, would you please turn all your iPhones off and all your computers off? And I went, oh, my God, you know. And I said, you could, you could have had a back channel. All 16 different people could have been submitting ideas and stuff to you. Instead, they got one person's idea at one at a time, right? So they, they lost about 16 times of the types of information they could have gotten. And I think, you know, we're still there in some schools. My next book is going to be called uh, Education Rewired, where I'm going to share with the parents schools that are doing unique things, not in a substitutive manner, but in a transformative manner using technology so that they can then go to their schools and say, well, how come we don't have a makerspace lab? How come, you know, our kids aren't, haven't discovered the fact that the arsenic level in our water is, is too high? So you're talking about, yeah, even some more examples and really focusing on those examples. I mean, that exactly. must be that must be really an interesting and frustrating position to be in as someone at a company like Apple, obviously very powerful and making these devices that are so desired and, and working with schools, but then not being able to obviously affect an institution of, or how school works. Um, what Did you have any things that, that you tried over the years to, to get at, um, you know, kind of encouraging the vision you were of use that you were that you're talking about in your book well i you know the key to any any change is really leadership and i think probably the most frustrating thing to me is 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 is, is the change in how quickly leadership changes you know boards are elected that's they schools? Come with an, yes they come with an agenda you know the headmaster or the superintendent stays two to three years and then move someplace else. And so there's never time for a change. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen incredible change, um, incredible, incredible change uh, with, that is undone as soon as that headmaster leaves or that mm-hmm. superintendent leaves, right? Um, it's incredible. Um, but, um, in fact, the best example right now is probably ESSA. Academy in the UK. It was the poorest performing school in the UK. Abdul, you know, turned the whole thing around with technology. The, so great that the, the government built them a brand new school. And now the new headmasters come in and said, there'll be no more technology in our school. Just like that. So it's undone. That's the frustrating thing. You know? Sure. And, you know, I, I'm curious I, it sounds like you're kind of just phasing out and retiring from your role at Apple. Um, and, but, but it seems like from, from some of the, the most recent strategy, the latest strategy you're working on, you know, as you're, you know, kind of up to the minute now, it seems like we're, you know, some of my colleagues and I were talking, it seems like you hear these days a big push by Microsoft and Google in education and a lot of efforts that, that feel like they're, these two companies really kind of are, want that space or are trying to, to, to new, do new services and products in that space. And I don't hear as much, you know, we don't hear as much from Apple these days um, as we once did. Is there, although you certainly have some renewed efforts there too, but is, what, what is the, how, how do you see um, Apple's kind of strategy at the moment or 
and and what do you think of uh, of this kind of you know uh, these threats if you will from from yeah. other companies trying to be in the space too of course yeah um well i don't i don't think i think steve's original vision for for education still holds true tim cook is 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 hugely supportive of education and in fact you you saw, you know, the big event in Chicago recently, uh, increased investment in education. I think some of the things that Apple is trying to do take time uh, from, a, from a technical implementation standpoint. Um, you know, our business, I mean, I, you know, you know I'm, I'm going to be 71. And I, I, I told people, you know, the last three or four years, you know, I'm not working to sell boxes. You know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I have 16 grandkids. I'm trying to change education so that they reach their full potential, so that they, that they're intrinsically motivated, that they're excited about not only school, but learning the rest of their lives. And I can tell you right now, you know, the majority of schools, that that's not the case. And I have some, I have grandkids. They're just, I can't send them to school because they, they're bored. Hmm. And I had one son who dropped out of school because he was bored and, you know, then finally got into the Savannah school of art and design, got a scholarship, graduated with honors, won the dwell award for his first home design. Okay. So, you know, you look at these, here's education and here's, here's, you know, here's this limit that they put on you. You, you all have to jump over the same hoop at the same time in the same place. Right? No, that that's got to change. So I'm, I'm, I'm exploring the idea. I formed a nonprofit organization called Beyond School, and I really want to offer a, a free learning activities based on challenge-based learning to students all over the world. Um, so that's something that we're that we're looking at right now, exploring on how to how to do that, and um, the concept of a um, micro school with a mentor, twelve mm-hmm. students any age working. Yeah together to solve a problem, uh, you know, with the resources coming from, from the, 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 the repository online. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my, of my life to, um, to, you know, focusing on the student. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, I used to tell in the early days people would, you know, all the original IT people came from industry, and they, they would talk about the total cost of ownership. And I go, no, no. In an education environment, it's the total cost of opportunity. How are you invested in the opportunity for the students? And um, the traditional Microsoft-trained IT guys don't think that way. Um, you know, they, they lock it down. No, we want to, we want to explore. You know, uh, we want to break things. Um, we, we want to allow for failure. I mean, innovation doesn't come with, you know, a straight, you know, journey. It's, you've got missed course corrections. You've got failures. Uh, we've got to allow for failure in the schools. So there's, there's, and the reason I wrote the book was to start a conversation. Mm-hmm. In fact, we don't talk about technology in chapter 13. <laughs> and, the la- and the last chapter is Gandhi's quote, be the change. So it's really written for teachers and parents to say, wow, there is an alternative to the 1912 essay you know, that said, let's build factory workers. 
Well, we're almost out of time, but I mean, I, I would be remiss if I didn't back up. I think my readers will, will scold me if I don't ask. There's one thing you just mentioned, and of many things you said, but that you mentioned that the things that Apple is building to kind of change some strategy in education or to look forward or take time. Is there one example or some, can you give us a little more picture of what that might be or what you mean by that? Well, I think, I think uh, there are parts, um, you know, there's the, there's the iTunes U uh, portion, which allows you to distribute curriculum all over the world. I don't hear as much the, about that. Is that still around? That's still going? It's still around. Um, and I think, I think what you learn, and very successful, I know many, many, many schools who are using it to, to share their, you know, their intellectual assets, if you will. Sure. Uh, there's, a new, there's a new application called Classroom, which allows a teacher to monitor the classroom. There's, there's iBooks. Um, I think if I were still calling the shots today, it would be how do I take those individual functionalities and integrate them all together in a, in a dynamic learning environment uh, that, um, you know, that's well integrated. It's sort of the holy grail. People use the word personalized learning, but it's kind of a misnomer because real learning takes place not as an individual person, but in a collaborative environment where there's intrinsically motivated challenges. So I'm hoping that, you know, and I hopefully I still have influence there. Um, I'm still on contract this year uh, as to complete some of the speaking and I'm speaking in the uh, state of Oklahoma, state of Montana, state of South Carolina. Um, but I'm also, hopefully I can still kind of influence Apple in terms of, of what's needed out there to really be able to empower the teacher to meet the needs of 30 kids in a classroom. <laughs> and, and you, um, one last question. In, how soon do you think we might get to a point where there's more of this change in the role of the teacher you mentioned in the book, the, the kind of changes, more fundamental changes, the rewiring of education, so that these, whatever technology people use, uh, Apple or otherwise, is getting toward this just this vision you're painting of challenging and, and well, instead of the old yeah. way. Yeah. I, I, you know, it, it doesn't exist a hundred percent today, but it's, it's getting there. And it's like the old, the old saying, the revolution has started. It's just not equally distributed. Hmm. Uh, I don't believe that education is going to change top down. I believe it's going to change bottom up. Almost all changes come from individual, you know, innovative efforts. And so the, purpose of the book was to start a conversation, to be able to have conversations like we're having now, to have parents have conversations with, with their kids' schools. Uh, I will be in uh, Washington, D.C. in two weeks at the Department of Education, hopefully having a conversation around the book, mm. around some of the ideas in the book. Um, you know, my, my old boss in the early Apple days, Mike Markle, used to refer to uh, a challenge of this nature is moving a 20,000 pound marshmallow, you know, hmm. no matter how hard you push, it doesn't move. You know, what do you do? You got one bite at a time. Okay. So hopefully one bite at a time, start the conversation, follow up with, with very concrete examples of what schools are doing all over the world to change the pedagogy um, so that people can, you know, can approach their schools and say, why don't we have a maker lab? 
why are we still memorizing facts that, you know, Dr. Medina says, you know, it takes 10 years of repetition to be in our long-term memory. Um, that was another issue that the book brought out was one of the additional challenges was the fact that we have not integrated the academic research on learning how the brain works into our schools. So there's about 12 challenges, I think, that the book tries to, to bring up in a positive way, right? That says, you know, collaboration when I went to school was called cheating, right? Because every project I had was a single person project. But Vygorsky's work says, the zone of proximal development says, collaboration is crucial for learning. So when are we going to get collaboration back in? When are we going to allow for failure back in? When are we going to go away from this, this you know, static concrete grades that, that don't measure anything, that measure short-term memory? You know, there's, there's a lot of changes that need to be made, and they are being made in different pockets around the world. So if I can, you know, bring that to the surface in the same way that we're bringing this conversation to the surface, maybe we will get some change. Great. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Thanks again for, for talking with me today and having this conversation. Uh, it's my pleasure. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. Whether you listen to podcasts on Apple devices or PCs or Androids or, or on some Raspberry Pi device you rigged up yourself, we hope you'll subscribe. And please take a moment to give us a rating, which helps others find the show. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.